Open up your Bibles today. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Today's a special day. We're going to finish the book of Samuel. Sound excited out there. Has it been good? thank God for the word, then we'll jump in. This is a powerful chapter. It's only 13 verses, but it is the climax of everything that we've been studying and everything that we've been talking about here with David and Saul. David and Saul have been at odds for a long time uh, because God had anointed David to be the next king. Saul had been rejected because he constantly disobeyed God, did his own thing till God had enough, cut him off. But the gap between when David took the throne and Saul was removed from it took a long span of time. And uh, much of uh, 1 Samuel that we studied here uh, is dealing with that transitional period. We learned a lot of things about human nature and about the working of God in the lives of his people. Let's thank God for the word. Father, this morning we thank you for this study. We thank you uh, for completion. We thank you for this chapter. And by your grace, help us to get through it with conclusions, Lord God, and applications that can uh, be applied to our daily living, Lord. We read the word, Lord, to, so it'll change our lives, not to just hear stories and, and, and good thoughts, but Lord, we believe that as believers, you're transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. So Father, do work in us as we hear this, Lord, and I pray it in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. amen. Here's the chapter, a short one, but a powerful one, very sobering. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua and the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. The Philistines came and lived in them. It came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtoreth and fastened his body to a wall at Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. The chapter ends, Saul's reign ends, and 1 Samuel ends. What a startling 13 verses, sobering to hear the end of Israel's first king, and what a graphic 
display of the enemy's victory over Israel. Now the saga between David and Saul had drug on for a long time. We noted that David was minding his own business, tending sheep, just happy with life. And here comes the prophet out of nowhere to select the next king. The problem with selecting the next king was that the original king, Saul, was still on the throne. That presents a little bit of a problem. David is selected above all his brothers. Jesse, David's father, didn't even think enough of David to bring him in from the field to have him stand before the prophet. The prophet went through all the brothers from the oldest down the line. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. You got any more kids? Oh, yeah, there's one. He's a little guy. You know, he's ruddy-faced. He's just, you know, he's a little bow-legged young guy. We're going to just bring him in from the field. He looks at him. That's the man anoints him. From that point forward, you would think that was a good day for David, right? You just got anointed to be the next king. But from that moment forward, his life was a mess. From that moment forward, he was on the run. He was under pressure. He was literally under assault from the king who sat on the throne. And we might look at that and say, why in the world did this seem to have to drag out in such a slow, unnecessary fashion? You know, God pronounces judgment over Saul and still Saul is said to be, God's done with him. And he said, I'm gonna remove you from the throne. Still, it takes time and it's a long, arduous process. Yet the day has finally come for the completion of what God had promised to do. Saul's time has run out. Now you might think, why, why did David have to go all through this? Maybe you've gone through things in life that seem like, you know, you know God promised you or you knew there were good things ahead in life, but somehow you hadn't grasped them yet. Have you ever been there? And in the interim between the promise of God and the completion and fulfillment of it, there's a whole lot of drama. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> or maybe you're like a plane in a holding pattern. You're just like, all right, when am I clear to land? And God says, just keep flying around in circles, son. I'll let you know. God's in the tower. <laughs> and you know, the thing we like to do least in life is wait. Hurry up and wait. And David had to wait, yet yeah, the day had come here, and it's a sobering day. It's not an exciting day, but two things were happening while David was made to wait, and Saul sorted through things here. Number one, God was being gracious to Saul. And he was letting him work out some things and have his time to reign. And, and he gave him chances to repent. How many understand God is not in the business of just squashing us when we're, when we're wrong? Especially as New Testament Christians, we get chance after chance after chance. Maybe some of you are here today and you had 100 chances before you said yes to Jesus. Aren't you thankful for those 100 chances? So Saul, God loved Saul. He was being gracious to Saul. He was also working in David's life through the pressure of running from Saul. You say, it's unfair what happened to David. You know, some people under pressure get angry at God and they, they shake their fist at heaven and they go, God, why did you allow me to go through this? Mm -hmm. Maybe you've been there at times. I think all of us have. The thing is like, David didn't understand God was working out things in his character. Do you notice the only time you and I really get serious about changing is when we're under pressure? Come on, especially men. You know, we'll promise to clean the garage for years. <laughs> but then the lady of the house will put pressure on us. <laughs> Suddenly it gets cleaned. All the ladies are like. <laughs> so understand, we, we don't function, we don't change, we don't make adjustments many times until we're under pressure. You know, the, the times where I did best in school is when I went to Catholic school and I was afraid of the nuns, man. <laughs> you show up at Sister Teresa's class without homework, you're getting the ruler some bad memories. 
But I, I listened, I did my work, I, I made sure. Why? Because there was pressure there. So David's been under pressure, yet God has revealed his character and he's forged his character and he's galvanized who David needs to be. David's not a perfect man. You, you might look at some of the things David does and go, maybe Saul should have chased him for a couple more years. But God knows, God knows the timing of all things. Uh, chapter 31 is a stark reminder that even though judgment can be delayed at times, it always comes. And you and I need to be aware of this. Why? Because we look at what goes on in our world. Sister Pat's up here talking about the laws they passed from Albany that you can abort a baby up to its birth date, up to its due date. That a baby born in a botched abortion, you're not allowed to give it aid. You have to leave it there and let it die. Listen to me, that's infanticide. That's murder. Any way you slice it. It's quiet now, but it's the law of the land. And you say, you might, as a Christian, be like, God, wh what are we supposed to do? When are you going to move? What? And, and, and heaven is silent. Why? Because God is giving people the space to repent before he pours out judgment. He's a gracious God. He's a good God. He waited for us. We need to be patient while he's waiting for others. But these things, you know, is payday ever coming? Is judgment ever coming? Is any of this, these crooked things ever going to get straightened out? These are the things that weigh on us as Christians in the world today. And chapter 31 is a reminder here that though judgment be delayed, it always comes. God keeps his word. He gives all of us time to repent of our sin and repent of our bad behavior and the, and, and the patterns in our life, to come to him, to accept Jesus. But for those who reject God's grace, eventually they're going to taste God's wrath. The good news for us today is all of us can have mercy if we ask for it. Because Jesus died for everybody, amen? But the person who says, I don't need your church, I don't need your Bible, I don't need your Jesus. Wow. It's a scary place. It's a place that should show, sober us all up. Because someday will be payday for the person who says, I don't want anything to do with God. I'm gonna just do my thing and live my life and I'll answer to no one. Not forever, you won't. Verse one, Israel goes to war with the Philistines and it's not an uncommon thing. They're constantly fighting with the Philistines. They're like the Hatfields and the McCoys, always fighting the Philistines. Hey, what are you doing today? I don't know, let's fight the Philistines. And I mean, this is a common thing, but the only thing that's different here in verse one is that Saul knows because Samuel had prophesied to him beyond the grave. Remember when we studied, he went to, to the occult. He went to a witch to get information because God wasn't speaking to him. And the prophet Samuel was called up from Abraham bosom and said to him, you're, you're going to lose the battle or you, you know, your sons are going to die and, and you're going to be with me soon. No news like good news. And so the difference on the battlefield here, the difference today in this is that the word of the Lord has been pronounced over Saul. This is judgment day. And verse one, Saul sees all of what the prophet said to him come to pass, all of the judgment of God uh, over his life come to pass in one day. And you know, many times you look at this chapter in Israel's history and you say, you know, God's people go through hard stuff. And what do we do when the wicked prosper? What do we do when wickedness prevails? What do we do when they shut down churches and they throw prayer out of school and they pass all kinds of wild laws that contradict God's word? How, how do we feel about that? I'm asking you. It's discouraging, isn't it? It's sad. Sometimes it makes us angry. Sometimes it makes us feel defeated. Like, God, I didn't sign up to be on the losing team. 
We gotta be careful not to look at things so one-dimensional because you know what? I read the back of the book and God wins. <laughs> Amen. Payday might not always come on Friday, but it comes. And in that time, we should be praying that everyone involved in, in wickedness and craziness would repent and come to Jesus. But it's payday here for Saul, and it's a sobering moment. Verses two through six chronicle the darkest moments in Saul's house. Listen to just verse two. As I studied this this week, this verse as a father, as a husband, just blows me away. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkashua, the sons of Saul. In one stroke, in one battle, all of his sons, one, two, three, cut down and gone. Wow. The most painful thing they say psychologically, emotionally for a parent to handle is the loss of a child. And here is Saul losing all three of his sons in one battle. Now, he's not going to be alive too much longer to grieve about it, but he sees it with his eyes. And the emotional devastation of that is something we have to recognize here. This is a dark moment in Saul's house. Why? Because God has literally cut off the path to the throne for Saul's family. God said, your family's not going to rule. The kings are not coming out of your line. If you would obey me, he said, Lou, I would have established your throne forever. But since you refused me and rejected me, I'm going to cut you off. And that sounds stark enough to have it pronounced over us. But here it happens actually right before his eyes. All three of his sons cut down because of his own disobedience. And he has nobody to blame but himself. What a sobering moment here. What a dark moment. It's tragic and it's heartbreaking to me just as a father to think about that. But remember, Jonathan was one of his sons. Jonathan was a godly man. Jonathan recognized David as king and stepped aside and abdicated, as it were, the throne for himself and said, I know that God's with you, David. I'm not going to oppose you. I'm going to help you. Jonathan was David's best friend. And here he lies dead on the battlefield because the enemy had killed him. What a sad day. A sad day for Saul, a sad day for David. We're gonna see David's reaction to this at some point where he's just devastated at the loss of his best friend and at the loss of the king. <laughs> a sad moment all across the board. Now, while this is beyond sad and it is, uh, you know, we put ourselves there in an emotional sense to try and wrap our heads around it, we also have to see this as the judgment of God. Because God said he would not allow Saul's line to rule, so what did he do? He allowed it to be cut off. <laughs> Serious, isn't it? See, we don't like to think about God like that. We like to, us New Testament Christians like to think about God as happy, clappy, you know, he's just, you know, sunshine and lollipops and unicorns and rainbows. You mean God still judges wickedness? You mean God still stands against sin? You mean you know, the wages of sin? You, you mean we can't just do whatever we want and it's all good with God? <laughs> I wish it were, but it's not. I wish I could tell you something different, but I can't. And the thing is, the wages of sin are always and forever will be death. When we sin, we have to repent of it. When we come to Jesus and he forgives us of our sin, we receive grace. But outside of that relationship with Christ, the, the, the covenant of the, the law still remains and the 10 commandments are still in place for those who are not under the new covenant, they're under the law. And the New Testament clarifies this. And so we see the starkness of judgment without Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but this stuff like this in the Old Testament makes me love Jesus so much more, amen? It makes me love the new covenant so much more. It makes me love and appreciate grace so much more. <laughs> because I don't know about you, when I look at some of the stuff Saul's done, I think, hmm, you know, maybe I've been worse than Saul at times. And you're looking at me going, yeah, we thought that too. <laughs> you know how many, Saul like blew it three, four times and God cut him off. Old Testament, no grace. Most of us have blown it more than that on Monday. Right? Before you get out of bed. Thank God for grace. But we see the starkness of the judgment here now. Understand, the beginning of the end of Saul starts when he's hit by the archers. He's pierced through. There's something significant here. You know, on the battlefield, one of the most fearsome weapons of the day was the bow because the bow could project force at distance. It's said that the English longbowmen ruled the battlefield for a thousand years. Arrows could be, everything else was up close and personal. You had to get close enough to strike with a sword, with a dagger, with a shield, with a spear. But arrows came out of nowhere. And that's what they did to Saul. A volley of arrows from the archers directed at the king. Ba-ba-ba-boom. Out of nowhere. You say, what's the significance there? The significance is this. When we, you know, the, the people who reject God and when we resist God, you know, and we don't see the judgment coming, but out of nowhere, it comes and it's lethal and it's final. Huh. And for Saul, it was exactly that. Out of nowhere, these darts, and the New Testament talks about us quenching the fiery darts of the enemy with the shield of faith. Saul had no shield of faith because he cut himself off from God with his misbehavior. And the darts, they find their mark. The archers find their mark. And he's pierced through. And he's literally dead on his feet, mortally wounded. He's so wounded, he realizes it. And he asks his armor bearer, run me through with your sword. I don't want to fall into the hands of the enemy. You know, it would have been an ugly situation for the king, but the armor bearer won't touch Saul. And I want you to see that. You say, why wouldn't he touch him? Because he was afraid to touch God's anointed. David would not touch Saul. Why? Because he was afraid to touch God's anointed. Yet, we see what happens here is Saul takes his own sword and falls on it. Now, there's something pretty significant here that I want you to catch. David wouldn't lay his hand on Saul and he said, he's not going to die by my hand. Whose hand takes out Saul? His own. His own. His own choices. His own sin. His own rebellion. His own desire to please people more than God. Saul had no one to blame but himself. David wouldn't take him out by his hand. Saul winds up taking himself out. Sobering thoughts here. For us to be disobedient, there's such a contrast between David and Saul. David, not a perfect man, but he had a heart after God, and he'd listen and do what God asked him to do. Saul just refused to listen. One submits, the other rebels. The fruit of rebellion is death because the wages of sin are death. Sobering ending here uh, to the life of Saul. Verse six is so blunt and final. It says, then Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men together that day. Wow. When God cleans house, God cleans house. It's a fearful thing for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God, right? Thank God for grace. In defeat, it's even bad for Israel in verse seven here. You know, 
many times we need to understand the leadership that we're under also determines you know, what we deal with. Yes, we're Christians. Yes, we belong to God. We're the people of God. But you know what? Poor leadership of us, over us, that makes poor decisions, like the decisions we talk about that are coming from Albany about abortion, it, it, it brings a curse on the land. And the people of Israel, not just Saul was cut down that day, but many men fell on the battlefield. Many mothers lost sons and many wives lost you know, husbands. And understand there's suffering here. Because why? Because of Saul's bad choices. That's why it's so important if you're, wherever you're a leader in the community, at home, in your house, in your marital situation, you know, what we do has repercussions. It's like throwing the rock in the pond. There's a ripple effect. The person who chooses adultery, it has a ripple effect. The person who chooses pornography, it has a ripple effect. We see the ripple effect here in the life of Saul. None of us sin in a vacuum. It touches the people around us. I know it's quiet this morning, but this is good preaching and it'll save us. Verse seven shows in defeat, the Philistines scatter the people of God and they abandon their cities and the enemy literally moves into the cities. They move into their houses. They take their animals. There's nothing more humiliating than, than losing in war and then your house and your land is taken as spoil. What a sad day for Israel. I want you to see that, the ripple effect that happens when leadership makes poor choices. That's why it's so important to sit under good leadership and if you're under leadership that's not good, get up and move and let the Holy Spirit move you. Someone say amen. amen. You know, some of us are moving to different parts of the country and it seems like here in New York, when you get to a certain age, you abandon Pastor Rick and the church and you leave for someplace sunny. And what happens when you go out there, make sure you find a church that preaches the word, that's not about politics, that's not about making people happy, that doesn't, you know, hey, they tickle ears. It's amazing. Some people, if you don't tickle their ears, they're mad at you. <laughs> I get called all kinds of names. But you know what? We've got to tell the truth. And you've got to find a place that tells the truth. And if you're not convicted at moments, look, as I'm studying this, I'm convicted. My prayer is like, God, change me, change my heart. Draw me closer to you. Man, if there's crooked stuff in me, straighten me out, God. David prayed, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. The word con convicts us. And the Holy Spirit convicts us. Saul would not give in to the conviction, and he just resisted God to the point where he forced God's hand to reject him. And today is payday in chapter 31, and it's pretty ugly. The people of God lose their territory, lose their houses. The Philistines move in, and just like the enemy, he wants to enjoy the blessing that's for the people of God. Your enemy wants to steal your blessings away, steal your gifts away, steal your relationships away, steal your finances away, and he'll do it if you let him. And he'll enjoy all your stuff while you're living in Motel 6. And nobody left the light on for you. <laughs> Verse 8. 
Verse 8 is kind of interesting. While stripping the slain of the spoils, remember the Philistines the next day go out there and they say, Let, let's see what's left on the battlefield. It's all ours. While stripping the, the spoils from the slain, they discovered. Now, they, they weren't sure what happened. They, they probably heard rumors, probably heard stories, but they find Saul and all of his sons among the dead and Mount Goboa there on the battlefield. And so they, they're really excited about this. Maybe they didn't even realize that they had taken out Israel's king, but you know they, they strip him and they find us. Now, verses 9 through 10 show us that the Philistines not only wanted to beat Israel, but they wanted to humiliate them. And the, the way they treat the fallen king of Israel is, is shameful. And this is part of the judgment against Saul, that his body is allowed to fall into the hands of the wicked, and they defile him. Look what it says. Verse 9 is stark. They cut off the head and strip him of his weapons and sent him throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. So what do they do to the king of Israel? They defile his body. They take his head off, totally dishonoring him. And they send his armor and his weapons to, to the house of their idols, to Ashtaroth. And they put, you know, it's a gesture saying, you know what? Our gods are more powerful than the God of Israel miscalculation. The Philistines never learn. But look how they treat Saul here. And you got to see, this is part of the judgment. This is the fruit of rebellion. This is when we refuse to submit to God. This is what happens. We dishonor God and others dishonor us. They defile his body by taking off his head. They symbolically render the king defenseless by stripping him of all his weapons. They put his weapons and his body throughout their territory to gloat over their victory. They take his armor and put it before their idols, making the gesture that their God is more, more powerful and supreme to the God of Israel. They fasten the king's body to a wall in Bethshan to make a public spectacle of him. Dark day for Israel, tough day for Israel. Their enemies have prevailed against them. They've defiled the king and they're making a public spectacle out of him. Verse 11 and 12, when the wicked do wicked things, the righteous need to make a response. Now it's quiet. Uh-oh, I gotta do something? When the wicked do wicked, the righteous have to respond. When they say it's okay, you know, to do X, Y, and Z, whether it's abort babies or, you know, during the times where, where you had to, black people sit in the back of the bus or, you know, China says you're only allowed one kid, you got to abort the other one. The people of God need to raise up and do something. Amen. And you say, well, what is it that we do? You know, do, do, do we get in a fight? No, we get on our knees. Amen. And we begin to pray and we begin to intercede and we begin to care and we begin to cry out to heaven. Do you know why abortion has advanced itself so much in our nation? It's because the churches scarcely care anymore. And some of them are preaching that, oh, it's okay, it's population control. Wow, God help us. When the wicked do what they do, the righteous need to stand up and respond. Now listen to verse 11. Uh, and through 13 here, pretty much it summarizes the end of the chapter. It says, now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard the Philistines had done to Saul, so the news got out. Remember, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Snapchat. You know, they had a slow mule and whoever survived the battle. So news didn't travel fast, but it got back. You know, this is what they did to the king. They took his head off and they pinned him to a wall. Look at the response here. All the valiant men, say all, 
It was a unified response. All the valiant men rose and walked all night. Stop right there. When's the last time any of us walked all night anywhere? Really? I'm mad when I gotta keep going back and forth to the refrigerator. <laughs> These guys got up and did something. And it wasn't an easy thing. You know, many of us are like, well, I'd do something, but it's too hard. It's gonna take all night. These guys got up and they inconvenienced themselves. Why? Because they were not gonna allow the wickedness to stand that was done. Sometimes the church needs to have the, the, the same response. Oh no, we're gonna pray until God do, does something. We're gonna intercede. We're gonna get out there. We're gonna make a difference. We're gonna sow our time and our energy and our money and our talent and our finances. And we're gonna, we're gonna make a difference in people's lives. <laughs> or we can sit back and be comfortable and do nothing. But we're gonna have to answer for that. These were valiant men and all of them got up and they walked all night and they said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not gonna let this stand. They got to Beth Shan there and they removed uh, Saul's body from the wall and they took the bodies of his sons and they, they, they took them back from the Philistines and said, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna let that stand. And they, they walked back and they, they, they burned the bones of them and they buried them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh and then they fasted seven days for the king and his fallen sons. Now, you see the response here. You know, there's times for us to be called to action. There's times for us to have a response. There's times for us to get up off our blessed assurance and do something for the kingdom of God. The Bible called them valiant men. Do we still have valiant people with courageous hearts who are willing to do something for the kingdom of God? So they capture those bodies back from the Philistines. Now, I just want to close out with saying one thing here. They burned their bones. Not, not really the right send-off for a king, almost like a pagan ritual here. Israel are not Vikings. You know, why are they burning the king? Uh, I'm not quite sure the cultural aspects here of Jabesh Gilead or what's going on, but it doesn't seem like a proper send-off for a king to, to be burned and then buried under a tree. But there again, it's part of the dishonor that Saul sowed in, into his own life by his disobedience. See, if we won't honor God, people will dishonor us. And so important for understand, we reap what we sow. Thank God for grace, but boy, can we learn a lot from the lives of these men. Given the choice, we should choose to be a David and be obedient rather than to be a Saul and be disobedient. It will set the trajectory of our lives in a good way and it will garner the favor of God on our lives. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I can't make it without the favor and the goodness of God in my life. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you today for 1 Samuel. It's been a long journey. And Father, the, the concluding chapter is pretty sobering. But God, help it to speak to every one of us. Father, I'm so thankful for Jesus that you love us and you're gracious to us. But Father, while we enjoy grace, let us never forget that you're a holy God. And that your goodness and your graciousness in our life is not a license to sin. It's not a checkbook to write blank checks about whatever we want to do, but Lord, we belong to you. We're your people. Jesus is Savior, but he's also Lord. So help us to be like David, to be men and women after your heart, and to reject the disobedience and the divisiveness of Saul, to make us more like David and less like Saul. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give him a hand.